we are in the book of Matthew. I want to uh, give us a little bit of warning where we are. We're going to be in Matthew 21, 18. 21, 18. You can go ahead and flip there while you're flipping. Um, this is my attempt at being relevant for the sport, this time of sports in the year. Um, has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, I heard Harvard beat somebody. I don't know who it was, but I saw on Twitter that Harvard beat somebody, and apparently it was an upset. Um, so anyway, that's my, that's my sports relevancy. I don't know anything about it. The truth is, I didn't fill out a bracket for March Madness. I haven't filled out a bracket in like 15 years. And honestly, I would trade all of March Madness for one weekend of college football. So it's just, anyway. Um, we're in Matthew, Matthew 21, um, 18. <laughs> we're in 21, 18. Now here's the deal. Um, we're going to go all the way, not today. So before I need to say that, we're going to go all the way to 22, uh, 14. 2214. If you look in your, in, your, in your Bible there, that's like 40 verses. And if you know me, there's no way that I can do 20, 40 verses in a sermon in like in 40 minutes, 55 minutes. Um, so uh, what we're going to do here is really all of that section is really one big giant thought um, in the book of Matthew. So what we're going to do is we're going to do half of that today, roughly half of that. There's three major points in that big section of 2118 all the way through 2214. There's one big major point, uh, or three major points. We're going to do one today. I'm going to do like 30 minutes of introduction and uh, one point, and we're going to do the next two. Now, here's the thing. I can't do it next week because it's Easter, which really bothers me. I don't like that at all. So we're going to put Easter off one week, and then, I'm just kidding. We're going to have Easter next week. <laughs> You're like, you can't do that. I can't. So we're going to do Easter next week, and then the following week will be part two of this big idea of what we're looking at. So I uh, wanted to kind of give you a heads up of the way everything's going to be working um, the next at least three weeks or so. Uh, let me pray and then I'll get us all really quickly reviewed about what's going on in the text and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, even though really a lot of times in my own life and perhaps for everyone here, um, we know what your word can do. We know that it can cut down deep into our souls and expose all kinds of rampant sin, uh, idolatry. We know that. And so we come here maybe with some trepidation, realizing that that could happen today, that it's not anything that I say, it's just your word. Your word is so powerful. And as we look at it, it can and, and probably will expose areas in our life that we're not wanting um, to walk with you, areas that we're not walking with you and areas that we might even want to walk with you. And I just pray, Lord, for grace. I pray for myself and all of us, if and when that happens, that we would realize that that's not um, you coming against us in anger, but as Romans 2, 4 says, that's you showing us kindness that leads us to repentance and that it's your kindness that shows us those things. And so, as we look at a big section that deals with what good works or bearing fruit is supposed to look like in the life of a believer. And perhaps there'll be places of, of repentance that needs to happen. <clears throat> Would you come now and work in our heart and grant that repentance? My own life and all of us. We don't want to, Lord, just come here and hear and talk and leave unmoved, unchanged, with hard hearts, soften our souls down to hear from you, Lord. I pray for the Lord right now. If there's anyone in this room that does not know Christ, that has not experienced the good news of the gospel, trusting in him for the salvation of their soul, Lord, that you would come now and regenerate their hearts, that you would help them see the beauty of 
Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection for them and that they would put their trust and faith in Jesus. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as I said, we're looking at um, this big major section and I'm just going to do some introduction and one point. Um, And what I want you to see with me is the big idea of what's going on. Now, the whole book of Matthew, uh, as we've kind of entitled it, uh, we've entitled it Messiah. And that's because this book of Matthew, Matthew is writing to people who are Jewish. Yes, somebody, somebody's with me. He's writing to people who are Jewish. And so um, they were well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. And they understood that there's this person being discussed and being talked about in the Old Testament. And he is the Messiah. And so Matthew wants them to see that guy being talked about, that guy ta- that's, that's being discussed in the Old Testament scriptures, this Messiah, he's Jesus. Jesus is the one that is going to fulfill all those prophecies. And so over and over throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew quotes the prophet and helps them see how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy um, and, and highlights the authority that Jesus has to teach and speak. And so as we've seen that the entire book of Matthew is uh, really about the Messiah of Jesus and his coming kingdom, uh, we've broken it down chapter by chapter um, trying to help us see what are the things that the Messiah is dealing with. And um, this particular time, we started last week in verse 21 and we're going to go through verse 23. So 21 through 23, the, the major idea of 21 through chapters 21 through 23 is king of Jerusalem. If you look with me at 21.1, it says, now they drew near to Jerusalem. It's also in the previous chapter in verse 17, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So there's a shift in 2017, 21.1, and the entire book of Matthew, as he's writing, he, he takes a little bit of a turn right there in 2017, and, and that turn is a direct path towards the city of Jerusalem. Now, this city of Jerusalem is not just another stop, and Jesus is going to go somewhere else. For Jerusalem, Jesus... For Jesus, Jerusalem is a final destination. It's the final city. And it's not just a city. It's actually a destiny where he is willingly saying, Jerusalem is my destiny. I am absolutely, without question, going to be 100% obedient to the will of the Father to go to Jerusalem and give my life for my people and die for, as it says in verse 28, um, give my life as a ransom for many. So as Jesus is turning that corner in 2017, Matthew's doing everything he can with his power as he writes to help us see this is a huge moment. Jesus is being radically obedient to the will of the Father and willing to go and die. And as it says there in 2028, give his life as a ransom for many. So the big idea here in 21 through 23 is king of Jerusalem. So he enters this city, as we saw last week, where um, they were celebrating Palm Sunday. This is actually really Palm Sunday because it's the week before Easter. Um, but today we're going to be dealing with that. Hap- last week was Palm Sunday. And, you know, from Sunday to Sunday f- to the resurrection, you've got seven days, really smart. Um, but Monday and Tuesday, those two days right there um, are, are the texts that we're going to be looking at today. On Monday and Tuesday, Jesus is going to, on Monday, curse this fig tree. On Tuesday, they're going to walk back through, and they're going to see the cursed fig tree. They're going to go into the temple, and he's going to have some interaction with the chief priests and the elders in the temple on this Tuesday, and that's going to be the end of our, our, our time. So that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, but Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and as he's going into Jerusalem, he is showing that he is the king of Jerusalem. Therefore, he's going to have conversations with people specifically here we're going to see um, the chief priests and the elders. You can see that in verse 23, by the way. He's going to have this conversation with them, helping them see that he's got 
radical authority. I mean, he's got authority that's been given to him that's only divine, that's only God-given. And because of that, he is the king of this particular city, Jerusalem, and every single person in this, whether they're followers of Jesus and they maybe accepted the baptism of repentance back in Matthew 3 with John the Baptist, or if they're a chief priest and elder and they don't follow God, even if they say they follow God, or the outcasts who just know they don't follow God. He is the king of every person in the city, not just that. He's the king of everybody. And so... Um, we saw a little bit of that contrast as he on 21.1 last week um, in that first section as he rode in the particular city, his final destination, on a donkey. I mean, a donkey. That's just, <laughs> that is lowly and humble to go into your final week as the king of the entire universe on a donkey. And we contrasted it with Revelation 19, the second entrance whenever he comes on a white horse and he's all tatted up and he's going to destroy everything. So he contrasted this huge, amazing display of humility in this first entrance. But he's entering still as the king and he's going to have some really pointed conversations with them. Now, I want to give you the idea of what um, is the big idea here that as we're looking at these particular verses, this major section of about 40 verses of 21.18 all the way through 22.14, what's the big idea? He's going to interact with these chief priests and elders. And what he's wanting them to see is he is intolerant of people that are not bearing fruit. Those that say, I follow God, I am a follower of of God. He's going to help them see that he's absolutely intolerant with them if they're not bearing fruit. Let me let me show you that and let me show you how we're going to see that. Um, If you look with me at twenty one nineteen. You can see that says, may no fruit ever come from you again. Now, he's, this is when he's cursing a fig tree. L- look with me again um, later on in that chapter at 2143. The big word, therefore, is kind of giving us an indication something's about to happen. He goes, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it's given to a people producing its fruits. So there's the kind of people that actually produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. And so the whole big idea that he's covering here is he's looking at these these chief priests and elders and he's saying, you say you follow God, but you don't have fruit that shows that. And so as he's dealing with people that are not Christians, they are not followers of God, even though they think they are, he's helping them see that you don't follow God because you don't produce fruit. And after he tells them that they don't produce fruit, he's going to launch into three little stories, three parables. And those three parables, you can see them in 28 through 32, that's parable one, 33 through about uh, 42 it's parable 2, and then in, in chapter 22, the third one, that's 22, 1 through 11, 14. So there's three little stories that he's going to do. And all three of those stories are going to be where he just addressed them as people that don't bear fruit. And as he's told them they don't bear fruit, these three little parables are going to give them um, examples, if you will, specific little examples of how their lives, although they say they follow God, they do not follow God and they do not bear fruit. So this is a conversation of Jesus to people that aren't Christians regarding their lack of fruit bearing. Now, the the cursing of the fig tree sets all that up for us. So the key for us then, as we're in 2013, and more than likely, I would imagine 75%, maybe more, um, follow God. So we're looking at a conversation of Jesus with with people that don't follow God, even though they think they do, and he's talking to them about their lack of fruit bearing. Well, hopefully, for people that are Christians, you're looking at this and you'll say, how does this apply to me? (laughs) Um, Because he's talking with people that don't follow God. Well, I think the the direct application is, if he's talking with people that don't follow God and they think they do, and this is what's lacking in their life regarding fruit, 
then we're going to look at those three particular things and we're going to say, do I have that? Do I have that? And do I have that? And if I don't, then what's got to change? What needs to be different? What's going on in my heart of that I don't have that? And then maybe even the larger step back. Am I like the chief priests and scribes and elders where I think I am a follower of God, but I've not? And I think for those of you that aren't believers, maybe you're in that category or just like, I know I'm not a Christian. I, I, I don't even know I'm here right now. <laughs> well, you're here because God brought you. But um, the reason why you're here is because you need to hear the exhortation of faith. You need to be challenged with God, basically this, God wants you to be saved. He does not want you to perish. He wants you to know him and be forgiven of your sin and spend life eternal with him. So this is kind of for everybody, but I wanted you to see um, what was going on in this big, huge chunk of text so we can follow along. So all we're going to do is, is do some intro. The intro for this sermon is 18, verse 18, all the way to 27. That'll be our intro, and then we're going to do uh, point number one in regarding fruit bearing. That's parable one, and then we'll do point number two and three next week with the next two par- not next week, the week after next week, because um, next week's Easter, uh, with point two and three. So what I want to do this right now to kind of set us up is help us all see that if you are in Christ, there is a definite command of Jesus on your life to bear fruit. He, it's not a it's not a mystery. It's not something that should take you by surprise as a believer. If you're in Christ, there's many texts, I'm going to show us four, that help us see that God clearly wants us to bear fruit. And by, by bear fruit, let me just, in case you're not for sure what I'm meaning, I'm saying do good works. Do works for God that show that since you're a believer, these are the things I'm supposed to do. Kill sin, tell people about Jesus, um, help the poor and needy, help the outcasts of society. There's all kinds of blanks we can fill in on good works. But let me show you first, they'll be here on the screen, of evidences that we're supposed to bear fruit. Um, the first one is from Romans 7.4. I feel like anywhere I stand, I'm in people's way. So I'll try over here. Um, I feel like y'all can all see if I'm standing here. Anyway, Romans 7.4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So we're talking to brothers, that means people who are Christians, so that you may belong to another. So whenever you come to Christ, you're not, you're not autonomous anymore. You now belong to Jesus. You never were autonomous, but you're not autonomous anymore. You now belong to Christ. And since you belong to him because he has purchased you, he has adopted you as his own son or daughter, what are you supposed to do? You belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So it's not just I'm saved and I live over in la-la land doing whatever I want for the rest of my life until I'm finally taken out. You've been purchased by Jesus to now go and bear fruit. Another one, Matthew 7. This is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, and he helps us see what are some of his expectations of those that are, that are his. You will, re- you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is obviously no. Um, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So healthy trees are good, strong Christians that are following with him. Bad trees are not. Um, and he says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree can bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew thirteen twenty three. So I think we're all seeing here, if I don't see evidence of good fruit, if I don't see evidence of good works in my life, there's a problem. 
There should be a huge problem. I can't just come to Jesus, thank you for my salvation. I'm going to go check out and do whatever I want for the rest of my life. And at the very end, hopefully you'll, you'll bring me up to heaven. It's now that I'm a believer, I don't have to do good works. I don't have to bear fruit. I want to. I get to. Now, because you've saved me in worshipful response, all I want to do is give you my life and bear fruit. Here's another one, Matthew 13, 23. This is the parable of the soils, you know, the little four soils. The fourth one is the one where it was good soil. The, the seed went in of the gospel went in and, and it sprouted up. It says this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, 100, another 60, and another 30. And of course, in like a year ago, we talked about that's up to God. But the fact is that you're bearing fruit. Um, here's another one, John fifteen sixteen. This is the last one and I could do a ton. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. Why did God choose you? To go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, in my, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So here we see that there is clear necessity that should be happening in the life of believers that we absolutely should be bearing fruit. And from this big idea here in Matthew 21, we're going to see that Jesus is absolutely intolerant of people that aren't bearing fruit, especially those who claim to follow God. Now, that might separate people from either followers of God or people that think they're following God, but they're actually not. And that's, that's perfectly fine. That's good. That's what God would want. Um, so we're going to see aspects today of his intolerance. Maybe to say it another way, um, we're going to see what the lack of fruit in the lives of, were in the chief priests and elders. And from this, we can ask our, we're going to turn that negative, what's lacking, into a positive and say, we should have these fruits in our lives. We should have these fruits in our lives. And we're only going to do one. So that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's, let's do the intro. And, and as we're reading this, um, I'll kind of talk a little bit as we go through. Verse 18, in the morning, so this is Monday, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. So in his humanity, Jesus is hungry and he's walking through. And as he's hungry, he sees a tree, a fig tree, and he says, fig trees have figs and I'm hungry. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to get some food. Um, and he's using all this as an, an, as an intentional object lesson. Walking up as a hungry man, Jesus knows this tree does not have figs on it. I mean, he's, he's still God. He knows that it's not there, but he's got people there and he's going to, he's going to demonstrate a larger point here. Walking up, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree, and just so we know, fig trees, by the way, are symbolic of the people of Israel. There's a fig tree here that's got leaves everywhere. And back in this day, whenever you walk up to a fig tree, if there's no leaves at all, there's no food. If there's leaves on a tree, when there's leaves, when you see leaves, there should be figs. Every time on a fig tree, leaves and figs. It's not just leaves, it's leaves and figs or nothing. And so as you see this big foliage of, of leaves all over the tree, you're supposed to be thinking, oh, there's figs here. There's figs here. Watch this. He walks up and he sees a fig tree by the wayside and he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. Now, I'm not a horticulturist, so I don't know that that's a big deal. Thank goodness we have commentators that explain this to us. Um, but only leaves. So we see foliage everywhere. Remember, fig trees are representative of the people of Israel who 
thought they were following God, but they're not. So we see foliage everywhere. So basically they're boasting, look at me. I'm green. I've got leaves everywhere. I've got everything going on. But as you get closer, the issue is you have nothing going on. You're a hypocrite, Mr. Tree. There's nothing on. You've got leaves everywhere like you're a big worshiper of God and you've got all this stuff. But I get close, I don't see any fruit at all. You're just a big fat hypocrite, Mr. Tree. So the idea is, obviously, he's not mad at trees. You know, Jesus um, isn't angry at trees. That would be crazy. Um, he's, he's using this as an object lesson for all of Israel to see, you boast chief priests and elders, which we're going to see in 23, like you've got all this kind of worship of God going on, but you don't have anything at all. You're all show. You're all talk. And when I get close, you're nothing. You're a big, fat fake. And so he goes up to this tree, and when he sees the big, fat, fake tree, he says, and he said to him, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. So he tells him, no fruit at all. Now, um, let me take a little side break, because some of y'all might be thinking, well, this seems unfair. Mark eleven thirteen, because I know you're all huge studiers this week, and you've already looked ahead, and you looked over at Mark eleven thirteen, and you know, well, that's not fair. It's not the season of fig trees. Like, this is out of season. Jesus is going to a tree where it's out of season. It's not supposed to have figs on it, and he gets all mad at the tree and curses it, and it withers and dies. That's not even fair to the tree. Um, this, is a, this is maybe a way to, uh, 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 to think about this. Let's go back to 21, and let's just start looking at something. 21, what Matthew is wanting us to see is this. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, and the crowds are praising him. This is not necessarily characteristic of all of Jesus' ministry. Not necessarily. He did have crowds following, but all of a sudden, people are screaming out, Hosanna, the Lord saves. So we've got a little bit of, of something different. It's it's not necessarily the main season of praise. We're in a season of praise here, but here not a people knew. So we had not a people knew who Christ was. We have crowds praising him. We have kids praising him. There in um, verse uh, 16, 15, 16, we've got kids praising him. Jesus even says in verse later on in 16 that babies are going to be, infants are going to be praising him. We also had the blind and lame who are praising him because they've been healed in verse 14. So now what we're seeing here is there's a lot of people that are praising him that don't necessarily normally, normally praise him. This particular moment that Jesus is in, especially in verse 21, this Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, is the real season for out-of-season praise. It's the, it's, it's the season for out-of-season praise. Therefore, this tree, even though it's out of season, should be praising, uh, praising God because the season for out of season. So he walks up and he's looking at this and he's saying, Israel, it's the season for out of season praise. You should be, uh, the king of Jerusalem is here. You should be praising me. You should be worshiping me. But instead, you're worshiping yourself. All you're doing is lifting high yourself. On the outward, you're a big facade of what you think is great. But on the inward, we're going to look at this at 23. You're wretched. You don't love me. This is what Christ is saying. And so he goes up to this tree and he says, may you never bear fruit again. Spurgeon looking at this and this is what he says. The blighted fig tree was a singularly apt simile of the jewish state that's such a hard thing to read um so the trees a simile of of the state of of jew of the jews at the time he says the nation had promised great things to god when all the other nations were like the trees without leaves making no profession of allegiance to the true god so you got nations that don't have any leaves they're not trying to fake here you have the jewish nation 
covered with leafage, an abundant religious profession, but there's not a fig on this full-leafed tree. There was no fruit upon them, for the people were neither holy, they were not just, they were not true, they were not faithful towards God, and they were not loving to their neighbor. They were big fat fakes. So we're looking at people who claim to know God who are supposed to be bearing fruit, but they're not. So let's take a step back and let's look at ourselves and say, are we boasting with green leaves all over us as we walk in and out of our daily lives, thinking that everything's fine, but inwardly there's no fruit whatsoever. We're not bearing fruit, and all we are is just a big hypocrite. D.A. Carson says, its leaves advertised that it was bearing fruit, but the advertisement was false. Jesus is cursing those who make a show of bearing fruit, but are actually spiritually barren or desolate or unfruitful. And so Christ is going to look at this particular tree and he's going to tell it that it's going to die. Now, the next day, we know that it's the next day. Mark 11, uh, verse 12 tells us that it's the next day that they're walking by. So it wasn't like immediately the tree withers like right before their eyes. Like, whoa. Um, But it does wither. And as they're walking by this tree the very next day, the disciples saw this tree, which was leaves everywhere and the next day they looked at it and they're marveling and they're just marveling at this tree how is it dead and we're looking at it and we're marveling that the disciples are marveling um but because it, you're like it's god i mean you, haven't you paid attention to the defeating of the five thousand and the four thousand and the people that were lame and blind and now they see if you can do that you can't kill a tree in a day i mean seriously i could probably kill a tree in a day with some right chemicals so um <laughs> so here they're like marveling and they ask this question although it is the wrong question how did the fig tree wither at once now how's not the right question really the question is why why did it wither what's christ trying to do and as i've said i've hinted towards i think i've even said it directly he's trying to show us his intolerance for the religious leaders hypocrisy and their lack of fruit he wants them to see that you're lacking fruit and that's going to build into our time as we look at these parables now Um, this is where it gets crazy in 21. Look at this. He said, and Jesus looked at them and he said, truly I say to you, if you have faith, now all of a sudden he's dealt with religious leaders um, and and, and really the state of Israel, nation state of Israel, their lack of following Christ and their, their lack of bearing fruit. And he's looking at his disciples and he looks at them and all of a sudden he flips it and he makes it an issue of belief in the gospel. So he's gonna talk to them now. You gotta believe you got to believe in me. And look what he says in 21. And truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. And here it is again. If you have faith. If you want to underline have faith in 22 and underline have faith in 20, that's fine. That's not a problem. But the point that he's trying to help us see is that he wants us to believe. He wants us to have faith. Have faith in what? Just faith in faith? We know that it's the coming gospel, the good news that Christ is going to give his life as he's coming to Jerusalem as a ransom for many. Every one of us are sinners, wicked, wretched sinners, and we know we're sinners, and we need to be rescued. And Christ is saying, I'm going to put my life forward and die, the death that you should be dying. 
And when I do, when I put my life forward and die for you, if you believe, if you have faith that I died for you and you repent of your sin, you ask for for forgiveness, and you live a life that shows that Jesus is your highest treasure by bearing fruit out of response for what's happened, not try to earn it, then you will be saved forever. And even right now, that can happen for you if you don't know Jesus. Repent, confess your sins, and trust that he died on the cross for you. All of his righteousness because he lived a perfect life, is then when we believe, given to us and all of our sin is given to him. The great exchange happens, and now we are children of God, forever saved. Nothing ever changes that. That is amazing news. And so he flips it and he looks at them and he tells them, if you would just have faith, you would be able to do amazing things. Now look at the amazing things he says. This is where, <laughs> it's like, really? I can do this? Um, I can curse fig trees and they'll die in a day, and I can move mountains? I didn't take that class in seminary. I don't remember, maybe Hogwarts has a seminary wing somewhere and they're teaching that class, but I missed that in my seminary class. I don't think that that's the point. Um, uh, some of y'all have followed that. Um, I don't think that that's the point that, that Jesus is trying to make. There's not like now that you're a Christian, some of you get magic spells and you can do crazy stuff. That's not what's happening. This is actually a figurative uh, kind of talk for us that he's trying to say, this is what happens, the withering away of people who reject the gospel. If you reject what we just talked about, the good news of the gospel, forgiveness in Christ, then like that tree, you too will wither away and spend eternity separated from God. Eternity in hell. Suffering the righteous judgment of Jesus. But you don't have to. Have faith. Trust what he's done. Say, yes, Lord, I repent of my sin. Please come in my life and forgive me. I want to now walk in worshipful response for what you've done. And you are saved forever, one of his children. Now, right after that, um, Jesus is going to enter into the temple. We're all still here in intro. I know that's crazy. 23, that they entered into the temple. And we see this. I love that Jesus just immediately goes to the temple, always looking to reach people, always looking for more people to become followers of God. He says, and he entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up. So now they've been introduced for us into the story. And we know that the rest of those three parables that are coming after this, those three parables are directly to be given to those chief priests and elders. Um, We're going to see how that's going to happen. He came up and there's the chief priests and the elders and they want to know, by what authority are you doing these things? You're cursing fig trees, you're doing all this stuff. How is it that you have this authority, Jesus? Now, if you've been with us throughout Matthew, you've seen, and we've even named sections like authority, but he's, he's shown at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that he had authority. He's, he's done things that exercise and display that he has the authority of God to be able to speak and do all these things. So I'm not going to rehash those things. I invite you to go read the book of Matthew previous to this. But we've seen already that Jesus clearly has the authority to be able to do these things. And so they're coming up and they're saying, how do you have this authority? Now, obviously, this is just them trying to trap. Have I ever said this before? The chief priests and the elders are trying to trap Jesus. I feel like a broken record as we've been going through Matthew. Here they are trying to trap him again. Well, here it is again. Uh, They're trying to trap him. Um, And it says, by what authority are you doing these things? They don't really care about the answer. All they care about is trapping Jesus. And again, I've said this before too, Jesus is just too smart for them. I mean, he's just, he's master. Like he, this is what he says. Um, Verse 24 is the deal is struck. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll answer your question if you answer mine first. And this is what he says in 24. I will, 
I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority these things I, I do these things. And so there's, there's the deal, perfectly legitimate. You want me to answer your question? Answer this one. And he puts it out there, and then he, he follows it up with it, and we're going to see what their response is. Um, 25, the baptism of John. Jesus brings up the baptism of John. Where did it come from? Curious here. He brings up the baptism of John. Well, there are any number of ways that Jesus could have gone with this to talk about authority. Why did he bring up baptism of John? Well, he knows how this conversation is going to go. And he also knows in verse 32, he's going to talk about John. You can see it right there in 32. For John came to you and he knows that these particular people, these chief priests and scribes, um, did not accept the baptism of repentance. And so he's going to put them into a bit of a quandary, a predicament, by bringing up the baptism of John. Let me, let me help you understand what's going on here in case you weren't here like eight years ago when we studied Matthew 3. Um, this is what it says. It wasn't eight. Um, Matthew 3, John the Baptist, this is before Jesus started his public ministry. Jesus um, started his public ministry by being baptized by John. So this is the day Jesus' ministry started. But right before that, John the Baptist, who was a prophet, um, was going and says, in those days, John the Baptist came, this is 3-1, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this was his message to everybody. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the Baptist, he's kind of crazy looking. He wears animal hair and he's all wild-eyed and he's telling everybody, repent, every single one of you. He's telling the nation of Israel, you need to all come and accept a baptism of repentance. It's not the same baptism as us. We know that's kind of spelled out for us later on in Acts. But he's telling everybody, people of Israel, Turn back to God. Start following God. And by doing that, have this repentance. And so he even tells them in verse 8, you need to also bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now we're asking ourselves, is this a big deal? Is this a big revival? Is this one of those kind of like scores of people coming? Or is this just some kooky guy out in his backyard with his above ground pool and maybe five people are there? Um, Let's let's look at this. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan that's a lot of people, were going out to them and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this is a huge moment in Matthew 3. More than likely, as Jesus, back over in 21, is talking to the chief priests, the rest of the people were there, they were either present or they know, oh, that's a, that was a big day back then. That, that was a day of revival. And when I was in college, we had a, a moment, um, a week where, I mean, straight up revival happened. And if anybody tries to come and tell me that revival didn't happen, like, I'm going to defend it. I'm going to get a little angry. That happened. Like, I cut class for a week. We all had revival every night. So basically, these guys came. <laughs> we really did. These guys came. They preached. Um, it was on a Monday night. It, was a, it wasn't even a planned thing. And revival broke out. And we stayed there till like, 2 in the morning. We all slept in that day. And we said, let's do it again tomorrow. And we did it again tomorrow. Let's do it again the next day. We had, like, a full week of revival. We all just cut class and slept in real late and went to revival that night. And had, I mean, it was crazy. Cutting class wasn't good, but that was not part of the obviously repentant start. We're not supposed to miss class, but we had that big moment ha- happen. And as I look back to, I don't know, 97, and I, I can still remember back in 1997, that was a big deal to me. If anybody tries to tell me that wasn't a big revival, I, we're going to have a conversation. I mean, that was a big deal. And these, it's the same situation. These particular people that are there listening to this conversation between Jesus and the chief priests, they were either there at Matthew 3 or they've heard about it, and they know those people that were there that got baptized, there's no question in their mind that was real. So Jesus, this is why he's the master. He realizes all the audience is there, and he goes, yeah, that's where he strikes the deal. Okay, okay, let's, let's talk. Here's the deal. You answer my question, I'll answer yours. And that's when he says, the baptism of John 
Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? They're messed up now. They don't have any answers. Um, and they, they discussed it among themselves. You can just imagine this huddle. They, you know, the, the little holy huddle of the Pharisees. Huddle up, bring it over here. All right, what do we do? Because if we say this, then we're, then we're trapped. But if we say this, then we say trapped. So we really know the answer. We know we can't, can't say either one. I got it. Let's just plead the fifth and say, I don't know. And so it makes me so angry when people lie like this. I don't know what the answer is. Yes, you do, you liar. You just don't want to say because you know you're caught. So um, this is what happens here. Sorry. Um, Verse 25, it says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? And this is what he says. They discussed it among themselves. They figured out their right lie. And then they came out and they said, from heaven, he will say then, why didn't you believe? But if we say from man, uh, we're afraid of the crowd because they remember that day and it was a big deal to them and they'll, they'll storm us. And it says, and they all hold, because the crowd holds that John was a prophet. So they just looked at Jesus and they said, we don't know, lies, lies. And so here's what's going on. Um, they know that if they say, that baptism was from heaven, then they are affirming the declaration of John the Baptist from uh, John one twenty nine. John the Baptist looked at Jesus in John one twenty nine. he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus. He takes away the sins of everyone that trusts in him. And they say, if it was from heaven, then they have to affirm that. Then they have to say, well, if that's the truth, how come we didn't do it? <laughs> so we can't say Jesus really is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We don't want to say that. And they also said, um, if we say it's man, then the peace, people are going to rise up against us because they feared that these chief priests and scribes feared the people because the people knew that this was a real day. They were all repenting. So they just say they don't know. Um, and then Jesus tells them, neither will I tell you then by what authority I do these things. Um, I'm not going to have your hypocrisy. You don't want to answer my question? I'm not going to answer yours. I'm not going to deal with you. I don't have to acquiesce to your um, questions here. I can do what I want. I mean, it's kind enough, I think, that Jesus even gave him a deal in verse 24. He didn't have to do that. He can just say, whatever, and just keep going. Um, so now, that's just the introduction. That's pretty good, right? Um, <laughs> so now, um, we're going to see here, the big question of what we're trying to answer is, we're going to see that they don't bear fruit in their lives. And they think they bear fruit. And Jesus is going to launch into, after he says, neither will I tell you these things. You can see right there in 28. What do you think? That little, what do you think is helping us see. The previous conversation in this section is leading into the next thing. And we know that there's, what do you think a man had two sons? Story. And then he tells them in 33, hear another parable. If that story didn't fill in the, the, the blanks for you on your lack of fruit bearing, here's another parable. He says it in 33. And then verse 22, um, cha- sorry, chapter 22, verse 1. Here again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven. Here's parable 3. I'm going to give you three stories in a row just to help you see you fake tree foliage hypocrites that you are not bearing fruit and you think you're following god so maybe he wasn't that angry um so here's what he says in verse 28 what do you think now here's the story a parable a man had two sons and he went to the first probably the older and he said son go work in the vineyard so this this owner has a vineyard and he tells his son i want you to go do some work for me this is, this is my work for you, son. Go do it today. And the son answered, I will not do it. But afterward, notice this little word, he changed his mind. This is, um, if you've heard of sometimes the Greek word for repentance is uh, metanoia, I think it is. This is not metanoia, it's metalethi, something like that. Um, but it still carries the same idea. What happened was there was 
regret that entered into the son. When it says he changed his mind, the, the kind of the deeper meaning on this word is he regretted not tell, telling his dad, no, I'm not going to do your work. And after he regretted it, he repented. Regret and repent. So that's, that's everything that's kind of deeped into this, or down in this word. He said, dad said go do work. I'm not going to do it. Right to his face. I don't care what you want me to do. I'm not going to do it. And then after he left, he thought to himself, huh, I can't do that. He changed his mind. He regretted what he said. He repented, meaning now I'm going to go obey. That's what repentance is. I'm going to go obey now. And he went. And he went to the other son. So th- now he goes to the other son. This is the younger son, the father. And he said the same. And, and this, I, this son said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. So he comes up to this guy and he's like, yeah, I'll go to your field. I'll work all, I'll do all it for you. Okay, see you later. And he just goes and does whatever he wants. Um, so to his face, he's acting like he's doing things. By the way, this is the fig tree. This is the foliage everywhere. I do everything, but there's no fruit. Um, and so he said, I'll go, sir, but he didn't do. And he looks right at him and he says, which of the two sons did the will of the father? And the chief priests and, and elders, they say the first. They said the first did it. So let's get the first, um, let's get the first point here. This, we're looking at evidences of fruit, and I want you to see what the first evidence of fruit is going on in this older son or first son's life. And this is what should be happening in our lives. The evidence of fruit is this. Love for God, this is lacking in their lives and should be in ours. They are lacking love for God, love for his will and his work, and they're not repenting when those things aren't happening. For us then, we should have a love for God. We should have a love for doing his work and his will in our life. And when there's not, it's repentance. Let's, let's look at those kind of frame by frame whenever the father comes to the son and he says go do this work for me in the vineyard and the son's like um no i'm not going to do it and he walks away and he has this moment where he realizes i shouldn't have said that i shouldn't have done that what inside of him makes him think i shouldn't have done that love he has a deep love for his father he realizes to his face that he shouldn't have said what he does but he realizes this is not who i am i actually love my father and so I'm going to change my mind here. And whenever he send me out, sends me out into the vineyard, I'm going to go love to do his will and his work. So for us, we must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he asks us to do stuff, we should love the will and the work that he asks us to do. Both of those things. I love God and I love doing what he asked me to do. That's what should happen. But if we're honest, like that doesn't happen 100% of the time. Maybe that doesn't happen 50% of the time. So what do we do? That's the last thing. When those things don't happen, then we repent. We change our mind. We have regret, and then we repent from that regret, and we go obey. This is what should be happening in our lives. And this is what the story, um, when Jesus is saying, this is what he's telling these particular people, when he's talking about the lack of fruit in their life, he addresses it head on. This is what's lacking in your life, chief priests and elders. You don't love me. You don't love my work, and you don't repent. You don't have a heart that wants to do what um, God wants you to do. Now, I feel like I need to throw out a caution here as we're looking at this, and I've said it before. I, I could be wrong, but I want to make sure I'm, uh, I'm explaining this. The fruit that he is telling them to bear is not salvific. In other words, the fruit that he's asking them to do does not save them. Jesus saves them, 
And now, since Jesus has saved them, the good works or the fruit that they're going to go bear is a worshipful response to the fact that they've already been saved and are going to heaven. That is incredibly important. Or else we're just trying to earn our salvation. And salvation cannot be earned. Let me, let me read this to you in Ephesians chapter 2. This is another text out of, I could have put this in the very beginning with those other ones. Um, this is Ephesians chapter 2 where he tells us, and I'm just trying to highlight the fact that good works are responding to what's already been declared to us, that we're not trying to be saved. Ephesians 2.10 um, says this. I, I can't find Ephesians. Where is it? My Bible drill days are losing me. All right, Ephesians 2.10. Um, this is what Ephesians 2.10 says. For we are his workmanship. So what does it mean for us to be a, a Christ follower? Did we work that or did God come? God came and he did the work of salvation. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Only God can create. He created us, a new man and a new woman in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? He says, for good works. So if you're in Christ and you're wondering, am I supposed to do good works? Absolutely. And then you can ask the second question. Do I have any good works that I'm supposed to do? This is even better. This is awesome news here, the second half of 210. Look at this. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are there any prepared works for you to do? Yes, from eternity past, God's already prepared them. There they are, down the pathway of your life. You've been saved. It's a worshipful response to good works. What can I do? I wonder if I even have any destiny for plant for good works. Yes, they're all out there. Go walk in them. Good work. I did this one. Good work. I did this one. Now, here's the best news, and I don't want you to miss this. Ephesians 2.10, we should not miss Ephesians 2.1 through 9. Like, it's all based on the gospel. 2.10, the good works, is based on... 2, 1 through 9, which is one of the best presentations of the gospel ever, which says in 2, 1 through 3, every single one of us were devil worshipers, dead, lying on the floor, corpses. And then verse 4, but God, biggest but of the Bible, he comes in and he saves us. He turns a dead corpse into an alive being. You can't do that, I can't do that. No one can make something dead alive but God. And when he saves us, he sends us, he does it all because of his grace and mercy, and sends us on a path responding of the fact that we've been made alive to go now bear fruit for him. Just amazing. So yes, there's absolutely good works laying out. And you're going to do it because God has made you alive. And you're so thankful and worshipful that he has done this in your life. You're going to go live a life of good works and and worshipful response. You're not going to do it perfectly. That's why there's repentance. We're going to respond in regret and repentance when we don't do it. And the good news is, when we have to repent, we're not coming back saying, will you accept me back as your son and daughter? That's already done. That's already done. You're already a son or daughter. That's such good news. That's just so key for us to understand that. Now, this is where um, it gets really, really pointed with Jesus. In verse 32. So he says, uh, I'm sorry, end of 31. They respond by saying, oh, it's the first son that does the will of God. It's got to be the first. And they're right. Um, And Jesus looks at them. And this is the... um, one of the very first times where Jesus makes a solemn personal application in one of his parables straight to the hearts of the Jewish leaders. I mean, no holds barred. And you've got to just, we've got to let the weight of what he's going to say sink in on them. He says this, these people who had foliage everywhere, they're just, look how good I am. Everybody thought they were perfect. 
but they were just big fakes. He looks at them and he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. Now, even in 2013, tax collectors are not necessarily well thought of. They're they're still kind of held in low esteem. They take our money and that ticks us off. We don't like that. Um, But then it's even worse. In the first century, these particular tax collectors um, or even the prostitutes were who were considered the outside of society. The tax collectors were just traitors. They were part of the people who were Jewish, and they left, and they joined the Romans, and they said, Romans, we want to work for you. The Romans said, you can work for us, but we're expanding this kingdom to make it huge. So what I need for you to do is go back to your fellow people and extort them for all the money you can that brings up the, so we can have our money so that we can go and oppress them further. So tax collect, it's not like today where they just give you your rate and you pay it and you're like, you know, forget you. Like this was people coming to oppress you and it was your own fellow people coming to, working for the people that were against you to oppress you more. And when you didn't get, they didn't give you enough money, they could just extort you. Give me more money, I'm throwing you in jail. So tax collectors were hated. And even prostitutes were the outside of society. No one thought them as clean. And so he's looking at this and he's saying, Feel the weight of this, chief priests and and scribes and and chief elders. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, the outside, the scum of the society right now, even though at first, like that first son, they say no, and they walk out and do what they want, they repent because they love God, and they come back and they do the will of the Father. The scum of society are repenting and doing the will of the Father and entering the kingdom. And he looks at them and he says, you religious authorities, you screamed out your yes, but it's a big fat lie. You never do what God says, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is amazingly pointed to them. He's not done. He's got two more. Um, and then he looks at him and says, and you di- for uh, verse 32, you won't enter the kingdom of God. They'll enter the kingdom of God before you for John. Now, he wants to bring up John. He brought, he brought up John back in verse 25 in order to bring up John here again. And he's saying, remember that day back in Matthew 3 when people were repenting and coming to know Christ? You, or repenting for, the, for their sins and, and saying they're going to start following God now? You should have done that too. And look at, look at how hard-hearted these particular people are. He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. He even said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And look at this. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, they believed. We see the exhortation for faith again. And even in this room, we see if you are the outside. And listen, tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes, um, they're no different than you and I. We're not putting them on the outside of the real big, huge sinners, and like we're not. Every single person in here, um, because of your sin, is just like them. I am just like the tax collector and the, and the prostitute, the wretched scum of the earth outside. But because of Christ, he has declared me completely righteous. And that's that good news, that instead of calling me who I really am, a, a scum of the earth of the society, he has declared now who I really, really am, a follower of his and completely righteous. And that declaration on my heart makes my heart explode and say, I'll do, any, I'll do anything you ask God. I know that I won't always and I'll repent, but I, I, have a, I have a deep down desire in the pit of my soul to do what you want, Lord, anywhere. And so he's saying, they believe, they follow me. And he looks at them and this is, this is where it can get to the hardest of hearts. Look what he says. And even when you saw it, Meaning, 
they might even been there that day in Matthew 3. You saw the big works of revival and everybody coming to repentance. And you've seen the three years of ministry of what I've been doing, calling people back to God. And even whenever you see it, and even right now, afterwards, it's all evident in your mind. You're so hard-hearted that you will not change your mind even today and believe. Let's please not have this kind of heart. I beg you to not have the hard heart of these religious authorities. If the Spirit is working into your heart right now to repent, don't forsake the kindness of the Spirit to repent. It's painful, but Romans 2, 4 says that the reason why this prompting of the Spirit towards repentance is happening is not because God's angry, but because God is being kind to you. Repentance is a good thing because it brings us back to the one who created us, the one who loves you more than you could ever imagine, more than you love yourself, more than your wife, more than your kids, more than your love for your kids. No one loves you more than God the Father and understands you more. No one is more faithful. No one is more true. He is your only hope. And he's, being, he's calling you to him. The best news in the world. Don't forsake the prompting of the Spirit to follow that. Every one of us in this room, this isn't just for those who think they're the tax collectors. This is for even those who have been walking with Christ for 30 and 40 years. Every single one of us has places in our hearts that need to repent. Where we don't love God as we ought and we don't love His will and work in our life as we ought. Let's all follow the prompting of the Spirit towards repentance. And maybe the best question to ask after that is, if I do that, Fud, if I say okay to that, what's God going to do? Because my earthly father has stiff-armed me. My spouse, when I repent, doesn't forgive me truly. My father, my brother, when I repent, just never feels like they have forgiven me. What's the posture of the heavenly father? Is he really really going to? I want to conclude with Psalm 57. And I want you to see just how amazing our God is when we repent and come to Him. If you would be like this writer and say, I'm repenting, be merciful to me, O God, I'm, I'm ripping out my heart here, I'm being vulnerable, and I'm going to I'm going to say, Lord, forgive me. What will you do? Look at 51. Be merciful to me, O God. This is us. Be merciful to me. For in, your, for in you my soul takes refuge. The shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. I will cry out to you, most high God. Verse 2. To the God who fulfills purpose. Verse 3. What, what are you going to do? He's going to sin from heaven, and he's going to save me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what he will do. Look at verse 5. And then our response is, when that happens, well then be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
Verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. When you extend back salvation to me and you extend that righteousness to me, verse 7 or verse 8, I'm going to say, awake. I want to sing a song and make melody to you. Awake, my glory, awake. I will give you all the praise and thanks that you deserve, O Lord, among all the peoples here in this room and among all the nations that I'm going to sing your praises. 4, verse 10, you are steadfast. You're steadfast. You're lo- For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Therefore, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. When we come to him in repentance, what is he going to do? He is going to rain down salvation and righteousness to us. And what are we going to do? We are going to, as Psalm 57, extend back to him worship and say, I want my voice to be heard among the people in this congregation and among all the nations that you are good and trustworthy. And when I repent, you forgive always. Oh, that's such good news. So in these moments here, we've got some time for Psalm 57 to be lived out in second service at Remedy Church at 1115 on March, whatever it is. Let's do it. Let's go for it. If the Lord's prompting your heart right now, repent. Because he is so forgiving. Don't, don't miss the, the um, warning that Jesus gives to them. How could we be like them and say, we've seen it and we're still afterwards not going to change. Don't harden your heart against this prompting. Come today to the Spirit. Come today to the Spirit's warning and say, yes, Christ, I repent. Forgive me of my sins. If you don't know Jesus, come and know him for the first time. He is mighty to save you. The only reason he hasn't returned in Revelation 19 for that second coming is because he wants you to be saved. That's what it says in 2 Peter 3.9. Come today and be saved. We're going to go into a time of response. We've got a few songs here. However the Spirit's leading, take the time. Read your Bible, pray, and then stand and let's, as Psalm 57 say, sing praises out in the congregation. And if you have questions or thoughts or you don't understand, come find me. I'd love to be able to talk with you. I'll be right back there in the back. I'd love to be able to pray with you, talk with you, anything you need. I'm going to pray and then Ben's going to lead us in a time of worship. And I just ask, however the Spirit's leading right now, that you, you, you would be obedient. That's what repentance is. Being obedient when the Father prompts us. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you're doing things in this room right now that are supernatural, that we can't comprehend and we can't put words into, but we know you're moving and you're working and you're calling us to not be hard-hearted, but you're calling us to bear much fruit based on the fact that we were dead corpses lying on the floor and you made us alive. Out of grace and mercy, you made us alive and you set us on the path of salvation and there is good works in front of us that you would even choose to want to use us is amazing. And you do. And you let us go and extend this great gospel to other people by word of mouth. And you let us go work in the hearts of the poor to serve them and love them and exhort them to Christ. And you have good works in front of us that when we see sin in our life that we know that we can be put, it can be put to death by the Spirit. And that's a good work. What great grace you have and i pray for my friends here as the spirit's prompting that they would be obedient be with us now as we worship give us all a spirit of repentance now and obedience to follow through we pray this in jesus name amen